Hello, everybody. AML here. Uh, we're back in the Chief Cast. Uh, short hiatus over the past six or eight weeks over the holidays and finishing up recruitment. Uh, but we're back on track and we have some material for you guys. Um, we have our in-training scores back. So we're going to focus on some of our deficiencies in in-training. Um, here uh, we have some of our chiefs. So say hello to everybody. Hey, everyone. I'm Oase. Um, I'm here with Oase and Alex. Uh, there are other chiefs in the background, casually checking Instagram and other such things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, can I just put a plug for um, Shirley Temple Master? Uh, it's an Instagram account where a young man uh, reviews Shirley Temples. Uh, it's exhilarating. I actually found a new account that I love. It's about a, it's a black cat that gets like green screened into all sorts of awesome movies and stuff. Uh, We'll share later, likely in the email. There's also, that just reminded me, there's another Instagram of a kid. It's called I've Pet That Dog, and it's just pictures of dogs that he's pet. <laughs> That's insane. Also, get pumped for Wellness Month. Wellness Month, tell us a little bit about that. What's up with that? All right. So this is our first ever inaugural Wellness Month. We have a bunch of fun lectures and different events. We're also going to have a step contest between the medicine teams to see who can take the, the most steps uh, during the month. And we'll have some more details in a, a new wellness letter that you guys will see. And it starts officially next week. I think uh, Wednesday. Yeah. Excellent. And the name of the Instagram account is owl underscore underscore kitty. It's baller. We'll send. So, back into educational stuff. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? So, you guys decided to choose a couple of topics, uh, once again, based on these uh, in-training deficiencies. The good thing about this, by the way, at the end of the year, we did this last year as well, we collected all of these deficiencies, and you can make a playlist out of this. So the plan is to go over some of these in-training deficiencies, just trying to focus on some of these conditions, what they like to test, how they might look on a vignette, um, and just key questions that will help you in your boards. Um, so we'll do maybe a couple of these per session. Uh, which cases did you guys pick for today? Uh, so we picked a few cases about uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and peripartum cardiomyopathy. These are the cardiomyopathies that um, we tended to do less well on, on okay. in training. Yeah. Do you remember, just by any chance, how poorly we did or how good we did on these? So I think we picked them because there were less than 50% of the residents uh, got it okay. correct on the in-training. So less than 50%. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Mm -hmm. So let's start with our first one. And there are definitely, um, definitely cases that will show up on boards. I mean, from experience that these cases do show up on boards. Definitely. Um, so the first one is basically they'll give you a vignette of a patient with uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that comes in with AFib, whether it's AFib with RVR or just regular AFib. Um, and then they'll tell you that um, the CHADS VASC is, is zero, which basically in general indicates no need for anticoagulation um, in someone with AFib. And then they'll kind of ask you management questions about whether you need to anticoagulate them for their AFib to reduce their stroke risk or whether you need to do a rhythm or rate control strategy. So the thing that you should remember with uh, HOCOM is that patients in general, they don't tolerate AFib very well, especially AFib with RVR. 
So is that a clue and a question that the patient is really, really, uh, sorry, really, really symptomatic with yeah. the AFib? Okay. They'll, they'll, they'll bring the, the patient, they'll say either they're like hypotensive or they have chest pain or they feel short of breath or they're in oxygen. Um, and then they'll ask you management decisions. And I think like our default when I have patients with heart failure in general is to look at their chest tube vasc and anticoagulate based on that. But the thing is just remembering that the hokum uh, patients are just a different subset. And this, you know, the patient you're going to get is going to be young. They're probably going to be like their 30s, maybe 40s. And so they don't, you don't think of them necessarily the same, but just kind of remember these few little different idiosyncrasies that we'll talk about as far as anticoagulation so that can help you on your boards. Yeah. Beautiful. So uh, hokum patients, they have a lot higher risk of thromboembolism compared to like you know they're usually a 20 or 30 year old patient who um otherwise probably doesn't have diabetes doesn't have hypertension doesn't have their chest vasc would be zero so in general you wouldn't anticoagulate them but if they have hokum um then they actually do benefit from anticoagulation just because their stroke risk is so much higher and so the question will be like oh you know what would you would you anticoagulate them and then the answer is yes you should anticoagulate them in the past, it used to be only warfarin, but now they've actually studied the the direct 10 10A inhibitors. So apixaban or varoxaban are, are fine as well. Gotcha. So your 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 oral anticoagulants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other question that they may they may ask is, um, the patient is you know symptomatic because of heart failure from their hokum because they're they're an AFib with RVR for example, and then they'll ask you you know would you rather choose a rate control strategy or a rhythm control strategy. So the first caveat to this is most patients with hokum, especially if they have left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, they don't tolerate being in AFib because they lose that atrial kick from their um, from their atria when they're in AFib. And so they don't tolerate being in AFib. So it's actually better to do a rhythm control strategy, either with cardioversion or putting them on an antiarrhythmic like amiodarone um, would be better than choosing a rate control strategy, which is by default, better for most patients who don't have HOCOM is to choose a rate control strategy for their AFib. And so, you know, they would ask you like, you know, do you want to put them on metoprolol or do you want to give them amiodarone or uh, cardioversion or something like that? And the correct answer is cardioversion slash antiarrhythmic um, So yeah, so that's tricky because you don't, yeah. you <clears throat> want to move away from, from what we usually do. Yeah. Um, for your kind of patient with uh, uh, new onset atrial fibrillation, um, would you ever choose a, a rate control strategy? New onset AFib? Yeah. Yeah, typically you would. I mean, if they've been in AFib for more than three days, then typically you would choose a rate control strategy. Yeah. Um, and then, just because it's yeah. safer, the antiarrhythmics have a lot of side effects. Exactly. Is the um, affirm, affirm trial? Affirm trial, correct. The yeah. one rate versus mm-hmm. rhythm. And yeah. What about cardioversion for those folks? I mean, if someone has been an AFib for, it's a new onset, less than 72 hours, then cardioversion is actually better. So you gotcha. Can and that's, that's kind of the, the tricky thing in questions and in real life, that sometimes you don't know how long they've been yeah. on it and mm-hmm. all of these other complicating features. Yeah. Awesome. So what else do you want to tell us about Hokum? I think, I mean, the other type of uh, scenario that you might see is more of like in the primary care clinic or more preventive strategy. So I think this is my med-ped side coming through. We see, you know, kids, but you might see an 18-year-old in the clinic as an inter- internist um, that you really need to be careful about getting that, you know, the family history about mm-hmm. sudden cardiac death. Um, the other scenario, you, you need to recognize the classic murmur that you would hear in hokum, uh, which we'll talk about, and the fact that these patients you should advise, um, you know, not to participate in um, sports 
And then the other thing that you should know is sort of indications for uh, ICD placement uh, in these patients as well. So what, what supports limitations um, do these patients get? Uh, is it an absolute kind of sport thing or? Or so, just a kind of always sport, which is just high, chilling, high, high intensity <laughs> physical activity. <laughs> so yeah, if you're like an avid Xbox. board game Xbox, you know something right. low intensity. But if you're like basketball, soccer, competitively uh, and stuff like that, should okay. these pa- these patients, yeah. Um, you know, usually sort of the classic is that you'll hear, you know, a systolic cre- uh, crescendo decrescendo murmur that you hear along the left sternal border. Um, that uh, decreases with squatting um, and is more pronounced when they're in the upright position. It's something that you classically see. You could also see on their EKG uh, features of uh, left ventricular hypertrophy as well. And you'll want to get an uh, echocardiogram for these patients when you hear that abnormal murmur. Yeah, and those murmurs are super important because sometimes they're the only clues that you get on a vignette. Um, So we'll bring back from the Chief Cast Vault an episode that we did with Dr. Condos. talking about all these different murmurs. Um, The other thing that you mentioned, the sudden cardiac death, these patients are at a very high risk of sudden cardiac death just because of the the way their myocytes are disorganized. Um, And so the indications for ICD placement, and and I think you were probably going to talk about that. Go ahead. Indications for ICD placement in these patients includes, you know, if someone has an unexplained syncopal event. Um, A lot of these patients, uh, so if they have unexplained syncopal event, it's probably high likelihood that it is sudden cardiac death um, that they had. Maybe they had a non-sustained VT or something like that. Um, so they would benefit from ICE placement. If they have a family member who had sudden cardiac death, and then you don't know what the family member had, but they, the patient in front of you has Hocum, then that if their family member probably had sudden cardiac death from Hocum, especially because it's an autosomal dominant um, genetic uh, disorder. And so that patient would also benefit from ICE placement. Excellent. And then there's, uh, you can do like um, outpatient, uh, just cardiac monitoring, and if you find non-sustained VT, um, there's another one they may not ask on the boards, but you can do a treadmill stress test, and if their blood pressure doesn't increase by 20, um, or if their blood pressure actually drops with exercise, then these patients are actually um, high risk for sudden cardiac death, and they would benefit from the other indication that's a little bit more technical where you'd have to look at the, the echocardiogram is actually if they have massive hypertrophy, which is actually wall thickness greater than or equal to 30 millimeters. So that actually is an indication for ICD placement other than the other things that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, or if, they ha- if they've had a previous ventricular arrhythmia, obviously, or you see it on stress testing. What other management considerations would you have? So we talked a little bit about prevention of sudden cardiac death with uh, avoidance of sports and with uh, ICD placement in in certain cases. Uh, Anything else we need to worry about treatment-wise? So you want to make sure that they, this is going back to the sports thing, you make sure they remain hydrated, you know, that their volume status status stays about the same throughout their life. They shouldn't be too dehydrated. They shouldn't be overhydrated. You should avoid excessive alcohol intake, but that's the same with any any patient. And then um, if they're uh, going back to their um, left ventricular hypertrophy, if, they're, if their wall thickness is very large, they can actually benefit from either an alcohol septoblation or a surgical like myomectomy where they go in and cut out parts of the ventricular cool. wall. I remember we had one of those in the CCU when I was in second year. Yeah. And they could actually benefit from, from that. Cool. And then just uh, stepping back uh, a little bit, diagnosis-wise, 
you know, you talked a lot about family history. That's an important way to kind of figure this out, getting a good clue in your vignette or in, clinically. Uh, any other tests other than an echo? And I also think, I mean, I guess the other thing is that there are genetic testing that you can do. Yeah. Let's say you have a father coming in so or that, someone with mother. It. Someone, yeah, to confirm it. Um, you can do genetic testing. One of the other questions you may see, which we'll talk about, is sort of screening for these patients. So let's say, uh, you know, you're a father and you know that you have a young daughter like, and, and you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Should she just start getting echoes when she's 21? Should you start doing therapy? And actually, you should, um, you know, have them go see a genetic counselor and have the daughter um, get tested first before you initiate screening yeah so I think uh, what how they'll bring it up on the the test is if you have a family member who has a known pathogenic mutation then all their first degree family members have to be screened with genetic testing and also um, echocardiogram because they could have um, and if the if their genetic testing for the family members that are being screened is negative, then that's it. They don't need further testing. But if there's they're they're positive, then they need the echocardiogram and usually EKG. Usually you start at the age of 12 until they reach adulthood, like every year. Um, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Awesome. Um, with that, I'm not sure if you guys have any other tidbits that you wanted to share on Holcomb. Uh, if not, we can move on to our second. Uh, the one thing, if um, I mean, I mentioned earlier that Holcomb patients don't benefit specifically from uh, rate control for AFib, but they do benefit from like guideline-directed medical therapy for heart failure in general. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at the beta blockers, and this might be like a tricky question they ask, is they, they want to make sure that you don't select a uh, vasodilating beta blocker. So these patients should not have, should not be on carvedilol. They should not be on... Um, and this all goes to the same kind of concepts that we talked about with the hemodynamics that they're so tenuous yeah. that any small change can cause symptoms yeah cool. you can use metoprolol you can use diltiazem for epinol like calcium channel blockers yeah beautiful mm-hmm. so what's our next case ppcm <laughs> So I think, I think sometimes uh, as an internist, uh, peripartum conditions can come off as being a little bit overwhelming. I don't know if you ever get an RT and you're going to the OB floor. Scary. It can be pretty scary. So something to think about when I want to talk about next is sort of how peripartum cardiomyopathy might present either in a, a question or in real life. So we have a 36-year-old female who's coming into the emergency department with shortness of breath. Okay. She gave birth three weeks ago. So I think the key thing here is to remember that as far as the time frame for peripartum cardiomyopathy that you want to look if you're either one month before delivery or five months after, this is sort of the window to look for and to consider this. Um, so you get that history that, you know, she, she just gave birth, um, but then you're also looking at um, physical exam wise, you see signs and symptoms of heart failure with uh, elevated, you know, JVD. Um, This person also has S3 and S4 that are present and a holosystolic murmur. You hear crackles um, and then you ultimately get an echo that shows that she has reduced uh, left ventricular ejection fraction. Um, So these patients basically present with um, acute heart failure of some form, Um, sometimes severe, sometimes not so severe. Uh, but the progression to cardiomyopathy um, is, you know, kind of the key issue here, uh, the age and, and being a student looking at these symptoms. Most of the patients I've seen, of course, are acutely ill in the hospital, um, but I'm sure 
cardiologists in the outpatient setting and you know gynecologists also look for these symptoms during that t- that window period couple other things too to consider um, during the this time frame if you have someone coming in peripartum with more chest pain too is actually SCAD where you have spontaneous coronary artery dissection and then um, in this question that we have so that's a good differential because you're going to have the acute heart failure symptoms and the maybe flash pulmonary edema as well as a consequence in this case of a coronary disease rather than uh, postpartum cardiomyopathy, but they would look similar in acuity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then um, Takotsubo cardiomyopathy is other another thing to consider. Um, I actually had a, a patient who was peripartum and had her had like a, a car her car hijacked with her uh, baby in the car. She oh my had lord. Scad, but we were worried it was a very stressful situation mm-hmm. that it could possibly be sort of you know keeping a broad differential could be Takotsubo as well. Interesting. Yeah. And how do we manage uh, postpartum cardiomyopathy? So, of course, the diagnosis would be you're postpartum and you have cardiomyopathy. Um, so echocardiography to confirm these findings and obviously not having a reason for it. So if somebody, yeah. you know, had a dilated cardiomyopathy before or something uh, uh, or alcohol use. Um, what about management then? Management is pretty much the same as regular heart failure with the exception that we have to keep in mind there's some medications like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, that are contraindicated, they're ter- teragenic, so especially if the patient's still pregnant in the one month before um, delivery, you want to avoid those, but diuresis, put them on um, guideline-directed medical therapy, they should be on beta blockers, um, they, should, they can use uh, hydralazine nitrates for like actual um, reduction, um, and then diuretics, yeah. So you're and you're 35 years old. You just had a baby, and now your heart is an has an ejection fraction of 20. Is that going to be for the rest of your life? So the nice, I guess maybe the nicer thing about peripartum cardiomyopathy is uh, we think, and again we don't have a ton of data, but we think that um, the heart failure actually improves much more rapidly, much better than regular heart failure that people usually get from coronary disease or from whatever heart failure they get later in life. Um, we think that they um, they improve better, especially with therapy. Cool. And so they need you know you need to keep watching them. And usually, I mean, they say the time frame for recovery is about six months or so. There are statistic wise, there's probably about thirteen thirteen percent of patients who will go on to continue to have uh, cardiomyopathy. One of the other management things too is anticoagulation in these patients as well. So if they have severely reduced LV uh, ejection fraction that's less than 35%, um, you're going to want to uh, put them on anticoagulation because their risk for thromboembolism is really high. Even if they don't have AFib, this is like the right. special consideration it, for these patients. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Excellent. So. We went through a little bit of how they present. We went a little bit on the diagnosis and on the management of uh, postpartum cardiomyopathy or peripartum cardiomyopathy. Um, anything else we need to do for our boards for that? Uh, there's one, I guess, one other question that might come up is uh, whether these patients can get pregnant again. Mm-hmm. And the ah. general recommendation is that um, if you had, because there's a, there's a high risk of getting it again even if you recovered, but there's a high risk that you will have, you know, LV dysfunction again with your next pregnancy. So the general recommendation is that if you have persistent LV dysfunction, you should avoid future pregnancy. 
Wow. So it could be that life-threatening. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Because you don't know, maybe the next time they have it, they might come in with a... Their presentation may not be just heart failure. It might be a ventricular arrhythmia that actually causes right. sudden cardiac death. cardiac death and stuff. Fascinating. And I think, you know, we're probably not going to be the ones making uh, these decisions. But another thing to consider is sort of your birth method. So for patients who are on anticoagulation, um, you actually want to decrease the risk of fetal intracranial hemorrhage. So these patients, you'll uh, actually want them to have a C-section if they're receiving anticoagulation. And I think not only looking at peripartum cardiomyopathy, but there's other conditions such as severe pulmonary hypertension, um, people have severe aortic stenosis, and other um patients that you'd want to caution to become pregnant because they're so high risk during this time of high mortality with these conditions for mom. Yeah. Excellent. I think with that we can uh, conclude stuff. Um, Wait. Well, awesome. Thank you, Chiefs. Thank Thank you, everybody. Thank you.